Welcome to Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. We cover biotech and science-related topics on the show, such as startups working on antibiotic drugs or colon cancer, to venture capitalists talking about funding and how that worked, to people talking about how they found a science-backed startup. Two, and this is one of my favorite parts, people talking about specific science-related topics, such as whales or protein engineering. You're really going to get a lot, and it's all going to be about science on this podcast. Over 400... And 40,000 deaths occur in the United States to medical error. And today we're joined with Yeesh, the founder and CEO of Scalpel Limited, based out in London. In this episode, we're going to get into how his technology is going to reduce that number in the United States and around the world, and a great understanding of who he is as a person and what he's gone through to develop it. Trying out a new thing real quick before we jump into the podcast, I want to call attention to one person who left a review on iTunes. Do well, D-U-B-U-E-L, that left a review saying that this podcast is great for scientists, technologists, and anyone who loves biotech. I just want to call attention to that person and thank them for writing the review. I sincerely appreciate it, and I'm going to keep working every week to stay at that standard and to keep making great contact. So thank you again, and let's get into this. Why are you doing this? Why are you building what you're building? Why did you choose it? So why am I doing this? I... I always loved helping people. That's like a really generic answer, but I did. And I think the best way to help somebody is to improve their healthcare. So I I was interested in healthcare from my childhood days, and I decided that I wanted to become a surgeon somehow when I was close to medical school. And the reason for that is I, I always looked at surgeons as, as gods, somebody who had power in their hands to you know save someone's life. And actually that transferred into my undergraduate. I failed to get into a medical school because I, I have to mention this, I, was, I did my undergraduate from India where you need to write an entrance exam and get into a medical school. I failed to score high and I eventually ended up in a dental school. So I, for the first time when I got it, I refused and I repeated one year just preparing for the exams and I, I again got a dental school mission. So I realized maybe this is for me. So I, I got on board. I never really loved dentistry, but I loved helping people through through the dental treatment. Almost towards the third year of my dental school, I realized that you could become a maxillofacial surgeon and you could get into surgery once again. So I think that was the time when I was like, okay, I wanted to become a maxillofacial surgeon. So that is that was the initial drive. And moving on from there, I, I think there is many years later, I moved totally away from dentistry, away from surgery, but actually into a space called medical visualization. So after my undergraduate in dentistry, I moved to the United Kingdom. I moved to Glasgow University to do my master's in medical visualization, essentially learning how to build technology that addresses healthcare challenges. I was always passionate about using 3D visualization, animation. I am an artist. I draw stuff. So I love playing with technology. So I, I did somehow marry these two passions. And then I eventually realized that during my PhD, so I did my master's and PhD in medical visualization. During my PhD, I realized the biggest thing that we can do is to is to improve the global patient safety levels. And that happened through one of these incidents where halfway within an operation, a patient's prosthesis that was to be placed in that particular patient was, was of a different patient. So it was a wrong process. They realized that they stopped the surgery and they replaced it, but we, we call that a near miss. Otherwise, what would have happened is a, uh, is a never event, something that should not have, have, have happened at all. So I think that, that was the point when I realized that, wait, we could have prevented this. And I got interested in patient safety. And moving on, I think, fast forward a year later, I started building Scalpel Limited, which is essentially a company which is, which is making surgery safer. How does Scalpel make surgery safer? 
So we are building a non-invasive sensing platform for the operating room and for the hospitals, which captures real-time data of surgical performance and patient safety. So let me let me split that to you in in simpler ways. So essentially, what's going to happen is we are currently we're building a software that works with sensors in the operating room. The sensors inform software where we are what what is happening it gives you a contextual awareness to the people in the in the operating room which is currently in the perioperative team surgeons nurses anesthetists and the trainees essentially making sure that all the safety steps that have to be done in this particular patient are done appropriately so that is how it's going to make surgery safer so we are we also understand that it is not just the operating room where things are dangerous it's actually outside the surgery where things can go wrong so right from the point where a patient is admitted into the hospital to the point where he's actually discharged. There there are multiple pit stops where, uh, where a mistake could creep in. And that is our, our vision. Our bigger vision is to build this end-to-end patient safety platform that improves safety. So that is, yeah, that is a bigger vision for Scalpel. Yeah, I love it. There's a, there was a, a good news article out that they were using similar technology to better detect Alzheimer's. Like they would have it in the room of old people and they, they, they had some that they knew had Alzheimer's and some that were just regular, which is probably not a good way to define that population, but I'm going to do it. And like they would like watch, like using like Wi-Fi signals, like barely detectable waves to basically monitor everything about the person's body, ev- everything in, in ways that the person wouldn't even know to recognize it. But like, m- but medically, every especially with Alzheimer's, which it's very hard to know anything. Like, it's just a very complex thing. The Like, all that data is going to be really significant, and they're, they're trying to find a way to pr- pr- be predictive. So it seems very similar in the same sense where you're, you're, you're developing these sensors where, which are going to detect things and be, be... It's like having, eventually, I imagine, it's like having a doctor just stare at you <laughs> the entire time you're in a <laughs> hospital so that, like, you know you're safe. You know, if a doctor's sitting with you, I bet that makes you feel really comfortable. And... And so it's kind of like having that, like it's a, it's a, like, you know, it's like big brother, but not big brother. It's like big doctor. <laughs> no, um, actually not, not really. So, so what happens in surgery, I'll tell you how it is not that way. So what happens, what happens in surgery is we call it as an apprenticeship form of learning. You see something and you learn it. So you see it, we, we call it see one, do one, teach one, which is essentially you see something and then you do it. And then you teach it to someone else, and that's how you learn it. So, however, that's not what happens in current scenarios with multiple operations that have to be performed in a single day and multiple people trying to address the same patient. What happens is there's a big gap where human factors could come in leading to errors. So I'll give you one example. What happens in hospitals right now, in the UK at least, is we are supposed to use a mandatory WHO surgical safety checklist. It's a paper-based checklist, which is used by multiple clinicians at different points in time. But the, the problem creeps in where they don't talk to each other or where there is a miscommunication within people. And most of the times, I mean, if you if you look up on the on the internet, there is something called Martin Romley's case, his wife's surgery, where in case of a serious incident, we as humans suffer from two things: we suffer from tunnel vision and tunnel hearing. We we focus on the task while losing the context of the situation. So the situational awareness regarding that particular patient is very very important at that point of time. So the the data that is collected by the sensors is not going anywhere. It's only informing them what is happening there. And you would be surprised. Why are they not actually aware of it? We miss that point. 
they are not and that is why things go wrong because our surgeons they are there as consultant after many years of training they are they are not incompetent they are very much competent but it's the human factors that creeps in and you know most of the times we i come from a healthcare background i understand this it's very easy to pick up and blame somebody when things go wrong but it's actually the system that is wrong which le- which led to those tiny mistakes to happen where scalpel comes is it is making the system stronger and it is helping the clinicians improve patient safety so it is an it look at it as an assistant in your surgery rather than somebody observing you look at it as somebody helping you while while performing the procedure so how big of an impact do you think this is going to have on people's lives? So medical errors in the United States turned out to be the third largest cause of death. It's it's more than, it's not a disease, it's actually medical error within, within hospital. Hospitals turned out to be scary places and majority of those medical errors happen in operating rooms in surgery. Turns out the sad part of the story is two-thirds or again a majority within the surgical errors are preventable if all the safety steps are done appropriately. If you if you're talking in numbers, they've they've calculated that the number of medical errors in the for example, just within the United States, we have over four hundred and forty thousand deaths because of medical errors. That's equivalent to having seven to eight uh, Boeing flights crashing every single day with no survivors left. Um, and that is a massive problem. Uh, what's how do how do we not know if that is such a big problem why do we not know all these days that is the case is because when when a patient dies within a hospital we hardly know so they they come out with the reason for death would be like a post-surgical infection or a excessive bleeding or a heart attack but understanding why that happened and if it if it is going to be a medical error is not that kind of metric is not there right now and with the studies that have done in the united states extensively by peter prawn was what what turned out to come out is that medical errors are dangerous and that they are they they are actually causing a massive healthcare public health challenge it's more than anything else so it is a big problem let's talk about how big for example in the united, the united kingdom here in the last two years we have over 40000 serious incidents that happened in the hospitals um, and we we have over 442 so-called never events that should not happen at all so operating on a wrong patient or a wrong site of surgery or leaving instruments in patient's body so if you look at it more than once a day you have these problems in a highly developed country like the uk look at it uh, in the U- us where the number of never events which are like you wouldn't even imagine that this will happen, happen 10 times uh, higher. So there are over 4,000 never events. Look at countries like India, the number of medical errors are over 5 million per year. And remember, these are only reported medical errors. There are many unreported near misses, serious incidents that go um, that go unnoticed and patients still suffers. Uh, so this is a massive problem and quite an urgent one. Why hasn't it been done before? With, with humans, the problem is we... So there, if you read the book called Design of Everyday Things by Donald Norman, uh, he says that we push humans to do things that they are not good at, such as confirming the numbers or confirming the count or co- making sure the stuff is right, which is very, which is what a machine does excellently. Whereas humans are very good at adapting and innovating on the go, which a machine needs to be programmed for. Majority of the times, things that have to be done in in surgery or or in hospitals is to is dependent on the kind of data that is being gathered 
till then. So we're talking about electronic health records or the drug history, medical history of that particular patient till then. And that information could be could be predicted and analyzed very well by a machine. And we have enough studies to show that AI is surpassing a clinician in, you know, in detecting cancer, for example, or in identifying patterns which are detecting diseases. On a totally different end, why hasn't it been done before? I think I think the the answer for that lies in our culture. We trust that we we trust that a human could make sure that all these things are done appropriately it's it's the it's the cultural thing that that stopped any any other kind of technology to come in as simple as you know the world health organization checklist is a piece of paper right with with 10 checkpoints in it there are surgeons and clinicians who don't like it as well because they think that they don't make a mistake or they don't think it's of a big value all it is trying to do is asking them to recheck their assumptions. We don't think we'll make mistakes. We think somebody else does. This cognitive bias is inherent in us, which prevented us to, to look at it in, a, in an objective manner. However, there have been enough research pushing pushing for technology to improve, to detect patient safety issues in hospitals. So for example, the whole WHO checklist came in from from the from that direction, looking at you know alternative industries such as airlines, for example, or you know anti-terrorist groups, understanding how are they understanding where things can go wrong and how are they going to prevent it in in real world, and that is how we started to learn on a totally different end. Why would this technology work, and why why hasn't it been done before? It also has to do with the with the capabilities of what the technology could do. We are at a stage where, you know, emerging technologies such as deep learning, the use of sensors, use of IoT, use of use of information from from multiple points and understanding patterns within it, such as, you know, computer vision or NLP has is, is now on a rise, which wasn't the case, like, let's say, 10 years back or 20 years back. So there is also that trend that is coming in with technology. That's number one. On a on a second level, we need over. 143 million operations to be performed per year to address the global need of safe surgery. You know, there is a study showing that 5 billion people do not have access to safe and affordable surgical care by Lancet Commission. So there is a there's a massive need and there are not enough resources, not enough skilled surgeons out there to address all these problems. So a technological solution to assist them in the process is a, is a major help at this point. And I think it's a, it's a needed tool. I think I'd feel safer with what what you have developed being there. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking like, hey, if I was having to go into surgery and I had like the normal way, or if I had something like scalpels developing in the in the in the room, I'd feel safer. Like I I I definitely get the culture of like you know believing in humans. We had a conversation around with so we, we before we actually started building our solution, we met what in the UK we have these definite meetings. They're called PPIs public patient representatives. So these are PPIs, or we need to involve them in when you build any innovation for the NHS. So we spoke to the PPIs here. And quite interestingly, they suggest, they asked us, do they do hospitals not already use a system like yours? Does it already not exist? We were thinking it does. <laughs> and and they, when, when I kind of explained how things are done currently, I could see blood running out of their face. <laughs> it's, I mean, I'm not trying to underestimate the human effort where we we do i mean i come from that and i that i think i started off telling you how passionately i love surgery but the point is we are we can do better and we we need to do better because we still make a lot of mistakes and we still affect patient care they come to hospitals for to improve their health not vice versa so i think not 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 a different 
a, a different thing. So we need to we need to improve our standards, and I think that's where tech could help us massively. Yeah, no, I feel like if any if any hospitals like, oh, I don't know if we're gonna use your stuff. All I have to do is like leak it into the media that they don't use it. <laughs> then then they would be like compelled because then everyone would be like, well, I don't want to go to that hospital. But, you know, they could have the human error. But even even if it's like a small percentage, everyone people would be like, oh, you have you have cancer, but you have a ninety percent chance to live. People will freak out about that ten percent. Ninety percent is really good. At the same time, it makes it an effective. It makes it easier to sell it to the hospital because of like they assume like you don't want as the technology becomes more and more known. People are going to start asking, oh, do you have this type of stuff in place? And when they say no, it's, the next question is going to be, all right, which hospital nearby is going to have it? You Absolutely. Know? Yeah. So it, make, it makes but your job easier. While you, while that is right, while what you mentioned that hospitals who who have scalpel compare themselves with those who don't and look at the patient outcomes and realize that they need a system like this, that is true. That can happen. But I think what we are quite keen is working with the stakeholders who are the frontline clinicians like the surgeons nurses anesthetists who would who would see the benefit of this in 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 real time in their in their everyday life so look at it as as a cab driver using a google map or or somebody who won't so somebody might who uses it might feel that oh well actually this is making my life easier so you know i want to suggest it to my friend i want everyone else to use it so you know my passengers are safe and they're they're reaching their place appropriately so it's it's that where we are quite interested, like moving from the down to top, more than the top down, a down uh, down to top approach, that bottom up approach that we are quite keen at this point of time. I mean, you seem you seem like type, the type of guy who has like a, like a game plan. This is the first iteration, and you're going to add features and cool stuff it develops. Or so first product is what we call a smart check. Smart check is essentially a tool that imp- that confirms and uh, verifies safety steps in the operating room. But we we are starting currently with with specific surgical procedures in colorectal and colorectal surgery, which is a type of general surgery, and also orthopedic surgical procedures where perioperative infections are really high. So, for example, in terms of any implant infections or post post surgery complications, turn out to be expensive in orthopedic surgery. We're starting off with these two specialities, but the the bigger plan is to of course go to other surgical specialties and you know spread it across but also in terms of the features i think the solution will only have as many features as necessary we don't want to over engineer the technology because i'm i'm that kind of person who who builds a technology if it is only useful not if we can do it so uh, so i think it might not be technologically really advanced but it might be scaled across the surgical specialties and beyond surgery as well i mean we had conversations with with a couple of hospitals around interventional radiology which is considered a surgery minor surgery in some hospitals and also looking at uh, you know icu compliance of you know certain steps within ICU and emergency units so i think the one way to look at it is moving from surgery and into a broader range of medical errors is what scalpel would look like the future of scalpel it it might not be only related to surgery or limited to surgery what type of what type of tools or resources have you had to make use of to develop scalpel to today i know i believe you're a part of deep science ventures but i'm i'm always curious like what does it take to build what you've built like i'm assuming you use computers of course like you're probably using a computer to talk to me today like what's all the stuff that you use i think the biggest thing that we used is people's feedback and why is the the biggest barrier in 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 patient safety is understanding the right problem i mean we can we can build a solution for for literally anything but it might not solve the problem at hand so i think the biggest resource that we have got 
or we gathered is we spoke to around 37 to 38 surgical teams in UK, Europe and in India. So in understanding if this problem is a big problem and if this problem is the right problem is the is the biggest help for us. I think that that was the big the biggest resource that we could gather. The second thing that we we've under, we've understood is the kind of technology that could address this problem, and that was gathered through through my previous work in medical visualization, also working with people from multiple award-winning projects, such as you know one of my friend here who is working with Scalpel, he's a PhD in uh, machine vision, who who actually detects patterns in the riverbed. It's totally different, right? But the patterns in the riverbed or something quite close to patterns in, for example, surgical instruments in the operating room. The reason being, riverbed changes every every minute or every uh, every hour. So understanding a pattern in a dynamic environment is something that is of interest for us. So so technology came from multiple places. It didn't come only from a healthcare approach. On a totally on a totally different end, I think the third level that that was quite useful for us is understanding the implementation and adoption challenge. So however best a, a healthcare technology can be, if it is not implemented well across hospitals, it's a failure. So again, at that point of time, we we are I mean, we are selected recently for Panacea Stars Accelerator, and through them, we got in touch with mentors at McKinsey and mentors at Philips, uh, GE Healthcare. So these people actually ran us through pretty much what are the risks that we should consider and why medtech companies fail often before they actually scale across hospitals. Understanding the implementation adoption challenges, I think, is, again, one of the biggest plus points for us because we, we now know what to build which problem to solve and how to implement it. So I think that understanding that triangular, you know, the, the most important triangle out there is 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 wonderful. Kind of a similar question is, who's all part of the team and how do they help make this a reality? So I initially started off with a with a co-founder of mine who is who is also a medical doctor and who is a who is a resident in intensive care. So we we started off the company. I mean, but now we recently understood that we the company is going to become more technical oriented, and that was not in her in her alignment with her vision. She wanted to be more from a healthcare practitioner point of view. So she she decided that she would continue with her intensive care residency. So that was uh, that is the core team. She is uh, she was my co-founder. Moving on from there, we we also had Shanawa Zamat, who is a computer vision scientist working for us with the machine vision algorithms for you know instrument detection and also pattern recognition in the operating room. We we worked with multiple advisors, um, both from a computer vision technology and also from a business point of view and from a healthcare point of view. While majority of the clinical collaboration came in from Leeds Teaching Hospital, so they have this in the UK it's fantastic they have uh, what is called as surgical medtech cooperatives so there are these companies uh, think of them as organizations within the hospitals they they unite researchers innovators and hospitals so we 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 are in contact with lead surgical medtech cooperative and they got us in touch with all the clinicians that we need to talk to all the people that we need to collaborate with and eventually that's how we built our network and as as a PhD within, I mean, I worked at Leeds, I worked at Glasgow University, I worked at multiple NHS trusts, so I used my previous network as well. So that's how the team came together, including our advisors and our core team. But right now, it, it, it's a 
it's an exciting journey. We are going to bring, we are right now raising more funds and also uh, going to bring two more people, one focused on human factors. We already know whom we are going to bring. Maybe I, I shouldn't blame them right now, but we also are working with a couple of computer vision machine learning experts right now. So quite excited at this point of time. What are some bad things that have happened to get, round people out? Because like right now it seems like it's been kind of like an arrow journey, you know, like kind of flying straight. But I'm sure there's been b- tough times. So what are some things that have gone wrong or gone awry? I think the, there, well, I mean, I fail every single day. <laughs> I, I love to say that. And and I don't take shame in it. I think I learn from it and move on. So sorry if I haven't picked up any curves. It didn't. It is definitely not a straight line. I think it was, a, it's a massive you know, like a, a zigzag line out there. But the 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 underlying thing is the vision hasn't changed much. It was it was it was quite quite strong since the beginning and I'm surprised that that was so when we came into Deep Science Ventures, this was my idea. So I keep writing my journal on day one, a mobile app. And if I look back one year back, I still speak a similar tone when it comes to vision. However the path to attain that vision has changed massively. I think the mistakes that I made were, I think, initially addressing a diverse number of problems rather than trying to be very specific. So, you know, I got lost too much with with fancy solutions rather than a solution that improves the life of these clinicians. So, you know, understanding the meat of the problem was was one thing was a you know i made many mistakes in that and i mean as a company we made many mistakes on that that's one on one hand on a second level i think team wise as well i think it's very important we worked with multiple people in the past it needs it needs to be quite clear that you know when you when you when you are trying to build a startup you need to work with people who believe in your vision but it also understand at some level the kind of commitment that is needed to build a startup like this and when when your vision and that commitment doesn't when they don't align really well what happens is eventually a breakup and any kind of breakup is hard because people tend to get defensive about it but actually it's nothing about them but it's about the vision right so so that's another lesson that we have learned that it's very important in the very beginning stages to understand why they are doing what they're doing. That's the reason I asked you that question. Why are you doing this particular thing? People might tell you something which you want to hear, but they might that might not be the reality, which you'll eventually know when you're working with them. So again, one way we learned how to you know de-risk that is working on smaller projects initially and then moving on from there to actually working with them on a longer term rather than the alternative majority of times people just okay you're my friend let's start working on this together and they realize oh that didn't actually work out as we expected it to so i think the the best way to do it is start small work together hustle again that's another mistake we made we worked with people not sitting next to each other that hurts the company quite a lot because if you don't struggle together you don't know the pain so you need to struggle together and you need to come out of and another lesson that, you know, as an early stage founder, I've, I've learned it. So, yeah, quite quite a lot of that there. And also, I think another to, to finish this particular answer, I think the most important lesson of all is understanding how to build a viable business. You might build a fantastic technology, but everyone can build it. You might build an innovative technology. You might patent it or do a research around it. But to build a business has nothing to do with your solution. I mean, it has something to do with your solution. But more importantly, it it has to do with understanding people and their problem and understanding if your solution could address that problem. And I realized I failed once, I told you before, with a company. So I think the mistake that I learned there and the thing that we addressed it here is 
understanding the people whom we are serving. We, it's, that's the most important thing that needs to be done before you know any other fancy technologies. I do agree. Like sometimes people go big thinking they have to like you know make these quick connections, and it's like pain and time are both things that will help kind of suss out how people really are. Like like you said, you know, working together, sharing that pain. Like shared suffering is a great mot- uh, great binder, and then giving people time to kind of show who they are. Because I think there's like a good kind of quote or like rule of thumb someone told me it's like give someone like six months to show themselves only like a psychopath or something like that can hide themselves that long if you're around them yeah yeah, yeah. it's like it's not i always wanted the same thing like when i ask someone hey what are they up to and what do they care about i wonder how much of this is real mm. <laughs> or like what they're just like what they're just telling me mm. they, they, they would tell you what you want to hear I, you know i was a well i practiced dentistry for some time i mean i was trained within the dental school so i was treating patients we used to ask them how many times they brushed their teeth right so these guys they used to tell exactly what's in the book they used to say well we brush twice a day we floss our teeth i don't smoke and but i see the contrary in their mouth i used to see stains i used to see calculus i used to see all the things i used to tell them well you're lying if you would have done that this wouldn't have happened and then they they say, oh, well, occasionally I smoke. I was like, what's occasionally? And they say, well, we smoke once a day or twice a day. Oh, yeah, now you're speaking. <laughs> so, so, you know, yeah, people, what they say and what they do are quite different. And that's the reason I think, and that would come out really well in difficult situations. It won't come out in all happy days. It comes out when things are really hard and how, how are they standing, you know, how are they standing at that point of time? Now, there was another uh, piece of advice someone gave me once where it's, you want to see really what the type of person they are. It's like watch them when they're when there's like some real crunch or something really significant going on. Because like in, anyone can kind of chart the boat in, in calm waters. How you decide to, you know, go forward when it's like a hurricane or something like that kind of really shows the, the type of person you are. If I could distill that into like a, a lesson or a suggestion for people to think about is kind of watch what people do, like almost like more so than what they say. Like if someone, you know, if someone says, oh, I'm really considerate and I'm kind to people, it's, oh, okay, when was the last time you walked an old lady across the street? <laughs> you know, like, look for, look for actions to back it up, essentially, right? Absolutely. They yeah. speak louder than words. It's something I watch for. Actions take time, though. So any other, like, uh, nuggets of wisdom you've learned along the way? Any other, watch people's actions, um, be patient, make people suffer? To be, to be honest, I think majority of them are already out there. People know them, and it's highly cliche information. But I think... If there is anything that I would, I mean, what I learned from my own experience is you wouldn't have, I mean, as a as an early stage startup founder, you wouldn't have an identity. So if you're looking for an identity, stop it. So you would do pretty much every single thing in your company. If it's a, it's a yeah, if it's a small team, of course, but you would do, you would do all the admin work. You would do, you would go out, pitch your, pitch for your company. You would build the technology. You would do every single thing so if you think i am so and so and i'm only going to do so and so it's not going to work that way so i think you should an early stage startup founder they should not define who they are their work will define who they are they should not define themselves as this so saying i am this would limit them to only that so rather i think i i keep saying this you are not a noun you are a verb so I keep doing this, I'm this, I do that, I do that, I do that. And that's what you do rather than I'm so-and-so. So I think that's one thing because people struggle when their identity is at risk. Well, why am I spending so much time emailing these you know, customers? Well, that's a part of the job. you got to do it. Uh, or why am I spending so much time doing this accounting business? I don't like it. Or filling these grant applications. I don't, I'm not good at it. You should stop saying those things and 
do work anyway what is needed there i think that's the first uh, you know something that i have learned and also i think the second thing is your finances could be like really really bad when and i think you need you need some form of support some from family i, I take massive support from my family i i speak a lot to my uh, sister and brother in law my parents uh, my aunt and uncle i have like really strong family support helping me out as in not necessarily only financially but also in an emotional way as a startup founder we we need to stop giving that brave face on on the outside we need to be vulnerable at least with few people around you know who are close to us so you could share what's happening otherwise there is a chance of you know depression coming in why is this happening to me even if i'm doing all things right so i think that's another thing taking care of your emotional well-being is is very important and building a company is no joke it takes it takes many years and it takes a lot of unrelentless you know and a lot of effort in the process so having an emotional support is 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 mandatory i think it's needed so those those two things not having a you know being ready to do whatever is needed and having a proper emotional support will 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 take us a long way which i think that's very good advice do you have any resource recommendations like a very smart person so i assume you either read or like you're always trying to push yourself to to gain knowledge and, and be better than you are today so i'm just curious do you have any news journals you like or any books you like any recommendations whatsoever any form whatsoever sure so i i read a lot actually something that i picked up during my undergraduate i read a lot lot right now i have many books that i didn't finish reading then i <laughs> then i have but i i read quite a lot so i think the the things that influence me the maximum are our philosophy smart thinking as a genre and and also science science books so so i i i could name a few i think i was influenced the maximum by a by daoism it's a it's a religious thought it's a philosophical thought in china ancient china and there is a book called dao de jing it's written by lao tzu lao tzu might be a person or a group of people no one knows but that book is quite tiny but it has all the wisdom in the world that you need and it 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 i think that is one book that helps me you know that that gives me a kind of perspective most of the times i i really like that kind of thought process so you know it puts me in a insane mind at times and on a different level i really also like hard hitting books such as anti fragile for example by nasim talebi or, or what was that previous book of his black swan um so uh, essentially his philosophy is you need to you need to look at problems quite objectively you need to look at the world quite objectively without any bias and you know looking at i mean when i when i read that book i think i questioned myself many more times as in am i doing this because of any particular bias or am i doing this in an you know objective manner and also anti fragile is quite quite an interesting book i think i think it's a must read for any every entrepreneur essentially making themselves anti fragile and their their company anti fragile i think i think that is one recommendation that i have and in addition to that i think people read a lot of business books anyways but there is this book called grid g r i d grid i i when i picked that book i didn't know that i would be influenced by it so much but grid is fantastic book so essentially it divides a you know every decision you need to make within an within the operations of your company into nine different boxes starting from customer so essentially divided into three customer market and product i guess and it splits again into three based on you know smaller things i forgot those specific words but i think that book is fantastic 
it's again a must read. It helps you in your decision making in your everyday life. So yeah, I think I, I read a lot of books, but there are certain ones which influence me the most. Well, I've been wanting to pick up Anti-Fragile, so I'm, I'm definitely going to pick it up after your recommendation. And I haven't, I haven't heard of Grid before, so I'm going to pick that one up too. The, and I, I've, I've tried reading the Dao Di Zhang, the... I'm saying that right. I'm probably saying that right, but I think I said something <laughs> yeah. else. Yeah. No, no, you, you said it right. But it's, uh, again, I think it's, I don't know. I grew up in India I'm, I'm, and I, I, re, I mean, we read a lot of abstract philosophy in Hinduism. So it was quite close to me. And I mean, I could understand what he was trying to say. I don't know if I understood it totally, but it is quite abstract. What, what he says there and what he means is a bit different. You need to read in between the lines and read it slowly and read it many times. So you get it. It is not, it, it doesn't ask you to follow any, it's not a religious book. It's a philosophy of life. And I think that's, that's what hits me the most. What? How can people follow along with you? How can people like kind of like join you on the scalpel journey? Like, you know, is there like a newsletter? I don't know. Like, cause I want to learn more, but like, I imagine you get tired of me poking you with an email every like. No, definitely. I think the best way to reach me as a person is yes at myscalpel.com. That is y e s h yes at my myscalpel.com yes at myscalpel.com you could go to the company's website but you won't find much information there right now because we we intently did that it's a landing page you you would know what the company is doing but essentially you wouldn't know many details i think we wanted people to reach us out alternatively reaching me as a person right now is the best point is on on through through email or social networks such as linkedin i'm not on facebook but you can reach me on linkedin or twitter that was yesh of scalpel who is working to reduce several hundred thousand deaths a year that occur due to medical errors that are preventable i just want to remind people that we got to talk about what he's developing how he built it great book recommendations where you can contact him and show your support if you like what he's doing send him an email you know like it's very encouraging to hear from people who actually care and get it other than that i want to inform people before we go that there is a new way to show support for the podcast and to keep it advertisement free from now until forever which is called patreon if you go to patreon and look for learning with lol you'll see this podcast don't forget to subscribe and leave a review we can be found on twitter at lol this year facebook and on the website learningwithlol.com also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every monday new episodes every tuesday and new blog posts around every thursday remember to share and tell your friends please and thank you